0: wonderful to see you. We've been in Galatians, as you know, and continue to be. Uh, Let me just uh, preface what we're going to talk about today. It seems to me that there are two general approaches to God if someone is interested in approaching God. If a person wants to be right with God, be acceptable in his eyes, to me, you only have two options. One is to access God through human endeavors, whatever they may be. Good things, virtuous things, maybe even religious things, as kind of offerings to appease God. A human attempt to sort of live up to his standards, uh, as far as you're able, so that he pronounces upon you a, a sense of okayness. Having done all these things, God... Uh, you imagine, will say, you're okay with me. So that is one system we could say of salvation, broadly defined. It's a system of being made right with God. Earn it yourself. The other system is diametrically opposed. It's a system that says it's quite burdensome for me to try to come up with a sufficient number of good deeds to appease God. I don't really even know entirely how he would grade me. Would they be enough? Would they be too much? Are they the right kinds of offerings uh, to give to him? Uh, That's a person who says, I can think of all these good things. I can fast. I can join a church. I could be baptized. I can go on a missions trip. I can make a donation. I could do all these wonderful things, but I'm still left with the notion I don't know if it's adequate enough to get me good grades with God. So that person says, I, I, I just don't want to go that way. That person opts for system number two, which is to accept God's provision and means by which we could be at peace with him. That's a person who says, why in the world would I uh, live with all this insecurity when I can just accept God's means of access to him, his way of dealing with my flaws, inadequacies, transgressions, Why don't I let God just finish the work by which the gap between us is bridged? Why don't I just by faith accept that? It would be a very gracious thing of God to offer a means of access to him without me laboring over it and questioning it. That's a person who opts for the second system. The first system we could label works, a means of accessing God through works. The second system we could label grace a means of accessing God through grace. In the first system, you try to be worthy of right standing with God. You do your best you could to be in right standing with God by doing all of these things. In the second system, you realize all the things you do are going to exhaust you, and you'll probably still fall short of God's requirements. And so you opt for the second means by which you can be in right standing with God, and that is Uh, through God's grace, by your faith, you just accept his provision for human sin, which separates us from God. Now, you cannot meld the two systems together. Folks have tried, but it doesn't work. The way they're constructed, it has to be system A or system B, or. It can't be and or. It can't be mostly system B and a little bit of system A It can't be 90% God's grace and 10% my works. It can't be any of that. These systems are diametrically opposed. Now, Paul knows this, and he's written this whole letter to the Galatians to make his point. Uh, The system of grace is diametrically opposed to the system of law or works. And the Galatians understood this initially. They were primarily a Gentile group of believers. And they got off to a good start with reference to their salvation experience. They rejoiced in the fact that they don't have to take on works of any kind, laws of any kind, religious systems and rituals of any kind. All they have to do is take on Christ, who paid the penalty for their sin and would act as a mediator between them and God. They rejoiced in that. But then things happened. Voices crept into the Galatian Christian community, and these voices were implanting doubts in the minds of the Galatians about the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, they weren't denying Christ, these voices. These voices, false teachers, were saying to them, you can keep Christ. It's really good. I'm glad you believe in him, but really, he is not enough. And so in addition to your uh, uh, res- well and accepted faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to, and here's the specific thing they said, you have to be circumcised. Now, this is really odd because circumcision was never given to Gentiles to begin with. It's all part of the law of Moses and sign of the Abrahamic covenant with the Jews and all the rest. And so these voices who were tripping up the Galatians are called Judaizers. They were Judaizers, so they were Jews, of an unsaved variety. They were unsaved. And they were allowing the Galatian Gentile believers to have their Christ. They were just saying, it's not adequate. You have to take on uh, our religious requirements in addition to your faith in Christ in order to be saved. That's what the Judaizers said. Now, they emphasized circumcision because circumcision was the entree into the Mosaic law. They were essentially saying, you Gentile Christians have to live by the entirety of the law of Moses, beginning with circumcision. Now, the law of Moses consists of 10 major commandments, but the Jews of that day and this day have identified in the Old Testament scriptures, what they would call the Hebrew scriptures, not 10 commandments, but 613, which are offshoots of the 10 principal commandments. 613. Imagine, the alarm clock goes off in the morning. And you have to set about trying to comply with 613 commandments. Uh, what a burden. And uh, you would think the Galatians would rejoice in not being obligated to live that, wa- that way. They did to begin with, but now they're doubting things. And so the Judaizers have their ear. And the Judaizers is essentially saying, you're going to have to take on not only Christ, but also all these laws in order to be really saved with God. Paul is not happy with this. And so Paul charges in with some tough, hard words, which you will see in chapter 5, which we're going to look at in a second. But first, I have to say one more thing by way of introduction, because this is going to become very important. When we speak of salvation, we're using an umbrella term for really three ingredients in the salvation experience. Uh, The first one takes place as an event, the moment one accepts Christ. It isn't something you grow into, um, earn, uh, progressively have. It's called justification. That's the first aspect of salvation. When someone accepts Christ in the heavenlies, there's a divine pronouncement that you are now going to be considered just as if you had not sinned, justification. It's a pronouncement from the highest tribunal of all, from the precincts of the heavenlies themselves, from Almighty God, the judge of all the earth. He puts his gavel down, and he says, case dismissed. You are acquitted the minute you accept Christ because by his stripes, you're healed in the relationship with Almighty God, a holy God. Because Jesus, and you accepted this, he paid the penalty for your transgressions and violations. The penalty due you, the minute you accept Christ, is transferred onto him, and you are considered to be in right standing. You may not be righteous behaviorally, but you are righteous positionally. You do not grow into that. That is a birthright. Boom! The minute you are born again, Uh, righteousness, in the sense of right standing, a positional right standing is pronounced upon you by God. That's the first aspect of salvation, justification. But there's more. In justification, the penalty of your sin has been dealt with once and for all. You'll never be penalized again for it because Jesus paid it all. So that's justification. But then there's the second aspect. It is not an event. It doesn't take place. At a point in time, it's progressive. It takes place over time. It's called sanctification. That's the process by which we grow to be more like Christ, to have his mind, to live by his values, to behave in a way that is pleasing to him. That's the process of sanctification. Notice process, justification and event, sanctification, a process. That's when we get to know his word. That's when we get to know him in prayer that's when we grow to be more like Christ, sanctification. So if the first step, justification, deals with the penalty of sin, the second begins to deal with the, the uh, power of sin. Sanctification deals with the power of sin. Though we have right standing with God, justification, sin still manifests itself through through the members of our body. We still do the wrong things things we shouldn't do with our hands, with our feet, with our eyes, and all the rest. Sin is still present in our life. It hasn't been eradicated. But its influence over us begins to be progressively diminished as we feed God's spirit in us and starve the flesh, essentially. So during the sanctification process, we have two components inside. We used to be all fleshly. Now we, we have still the fleshly component, but God's spirit has been added to us. And so now during sanctification, we want to plug into God's spirit, feed the spirit, starve the flesh, so that the power of sin begins to diminish over time. So justification uh, uh, addresses at a point in time the penalty of sin. Sanctification addresses over time the power of sin. The third and final component of salvation, justification is the past component. Sanctification, the present experience, and glorification, the future component of the salvation experience. Now, that's a time when the very presence of sin is removed from our bodies. So, notice there's a past, present, and future ramification of salvation. The past is called justification, it deals with the penalty of sin. The present is called sanctification, it deals with the power of sin. And the third and final is a future component of salvation. It will deal with the very presence of sin. We will receive glorified bodies. Our bodies now are subject to sin, decay. We die, we get sick, and all the rest. Well, these bodies are not fit for a glorified state. They, I mean, they don't last us. St- I mean, how long do we have around here? I mean, if you eat a lot of carrots, how long are you going to make it? I mean, everyone's going to go. But there comes a day, since we're called to live with Christ eternally, these bodies are not going to make it. So we get glorified bodies that are not ravaged by sin. Now, how long does it take to get that? That, too, is an event. So the past component of salvation, justification, takes place in the twinkling of an eye. The third component, the future component, also will take place as an event. Boom. We will receive glorified bodies. What is our salvation experience now? We are being made to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's this process of sanctification we're in. Now, I'm really belaboring that point because you're going to see in just a second. The Galatians got it right with regard to justification, and they rejoiced in it. They accepted Christ and his uh, sufficient substitutionary offering for their sin. They became fully converted, fully saved. There's no place in all six chapters of Galatians that Paul doesn't think anything of the Galatians, but that they are believers. That is very, very important. He's speaking to believers. He thinks of them as being saved because they, if you will, met the requirements. They accepted Christ as their sin substitute, and they were justified They were pronounced to be in right standing with God as an event the minute they accepted Christ. Done deal. But now they're in the middle process of sanctification, and they're messing up. That's where you and I get in trouble. Justification is a sealed, done deal. It's a pronouncement made from heaven. It is not contingent on anything we do or don't do. It's contingent on the fact that we put our faith in the one who did it all for us. In the sanctification process, that's where we get off track. That's when we listen to voices we shouldn't listen to. And that's why we that's when we who have been freely saved by grace through faith are very very prone to add to things, a whole bunch of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations that we come to believe are just as important as accepting Christ. And that's where you get church groups who say stuff like being saved is good, but you also have to be baptized. Now here it was circumcision, but the modern day equivalent is Accept Christ and be baptized. And be baptized. Paul would say, No, if you add anything to accepting Christ, you are impugning the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. You are saying, Thank you, God, but it wasn't enough. I got to add to it. Now, you may be trying to add to it by good stuff. Baptism is surely a good thing. Fasting, doing whatever, giving money to the poor. These are all good things. But if you attach to it more than you ought, you are detracting from the totality of what Christ has done for you. So you mess up during the sanctification process. That's what the Galatians were doing. They were listening now to false teachers who were saying to them, we're so glad you accepted Christ. They weren't dissuading them from believing in Christ. They were simply saying, please don't be naive. Don't be so naive as to think just accepting Christ is enough. I mean, people rebel against grace. Don't think just accepting Christ is enough. You need to live by rules and bounds and so on, and these are just as necessary as your faith in Christ. That's where the Galatians are now, uh, on the verge of being led back under system A, working for your salvation instead of rejoicing in system B, accepting by grace the salvation offered by Christ. Okay, that's the background. Now, verse 1. Now, Brother Chuck took the class through um, the beginning part of Galatians 5 last week. But with all due respect, I got to start there, if you don't mind, Brother Chuck, not to correct your errors because we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> well, I'm kidding. But just so you get uh, to get the whole, the, whole, the whole flow. Look, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Does your Bible say something like that? In case you're wondering why Christ came, there it is. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. You can't get free. You're entangled in sin. Who do you think you are? I mean, you're digging a deeper hole. When you try system A, working your way out of your sin by doing so-called good works, (laughs) you're going to find, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find what Paul found. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. So you can make your list of good deeds all you want. And, And I bet you everything on it will be really, really good. Let's say you got ten things on it. Maybe day one you pulled off all ten. Day two, eh, nine and a half. And now you're a guilty person, and now you're insecure with God, and now you feel bad about yourself, and now you just yoked yourself to system A once again, works rather than grace. I'm telling you, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Nobody gets themselves free from our sinful inclinations. It's part and parcel of who we are. We were conceived in sin. Only Christ could set us free. That's what he did. Now, I want to ask you a question. It says, for freedom, Christ set us free. Could I ask you, what did he set us free from? What do you think? Just shout out some stuff. What do you think, Joe? Uh, this is very good. Joe said, Christ set us free from the penalty of sin. Absolutely correct. What else? Yes, Maury. Yeah. Say, say more, Maury. Maureen said, "In case you didn't hear, he set us free from bondage. The 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 pressure you feel when you're always thinking you don't measure up. Have you experienced that freedom? It's unbelievable. It's worth more than than money could buy. That kind of freedom. Good. Yes, Ryan. Oh, beautiful, Ryan. Thank you for listening. Yes, when you think about I'm saved, what saved from what?" saved from the wrath of God to come. Thank you, brother. That is very, very good. Any other thoughts on that? What did he set us free from? Those are good things. So, folks, he set us free from this terrible, terrible quest to try to be right with God in the doing of good deeds. He got us off of that treadmill. He set us free from um, the penalty of sin, as Joe pointed out. He is setting us free from the power of sin. He will set us free one day, even from the presence of sin. Now, who could do that but Christ? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Make no mistake about it. Only he could do it. Nobody else did. Therefore, says he, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So here's the deal. A declaration has been made in heaven. It's called a positional truth It's true of you, not contingent on your behavior, but on your position. Your new position is to be in right standing with God through your acceptance of the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to provide for the remission of your sins. That's a positional – you're positioned rightly with God. That's a done deal. In light of that, however, you should live. So your condition here should reflect your position there. So what Paul is saying here, Christ already set you free. Stand firm in that freedom. He's telling the Galatians, this is your work. You don't work for your salvation. You work out your salvation. It's already been provided for you. You live in terms of what's already true. You live up to your new status. You're not a beggar. You're not offering endless um accumulation of sacrifices to Almighty God, wondering if you can win his favor since you already have his favor. Live out your life as an accepted, favored one. So your position is already settled in heaven. It should affect your condition here on earth. Stand firm, in other words. Don't waver. Don't let anyone persuade you that Jesus is not enough because if you take on anything, Jesus plus anything, According to what this verse says, you're again going to put yourself under a yoke of slavery. You've been set free from it. Don't go back under it. That's what he says. Then he says, verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you. That's huge. You know what he's doing? He's pulling rank. He doesn't often do it. He's speaking out of the fullness of his authority as an apostle. I, Paul, say to you, because this is a big, big issue. I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. What does he mean by that? Well, he's not against circumcision. He was a Jew. He was circumcised. He had Timothy circumcised. He doesn't have a problem with circumcision. He would never tell Jewish parents who just birthed a newborn baby boy Don't have him circumcised. No, that was a sign of the covenant. There's nothing inherently wrong with circumcision. But if you think circumcision is a must in order for you to be saved, he's going crazy. And he says, if that's what you think, Christ is of no benefit to you. You see why? Because then you put yourself back under system A. If you take on circumcision as the means by which you can be saved in God's eyes, you have rejected the uh, sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. One or the other. Remember I said, system A, system B, do not mix. What if the person to be circumcised says, yeah, but what if I think Jesus uh, saved uh, or contributed to my salvation 99%? You know, circumcision is only 1%. Boom. Paul would say, nope, even then, Christ is of no benefit to you. Uh, Salvation is either all of Christ or it isn't salvation. It cannot be Christ plus something else. And so he's saying, if you receive, because they might be saying, what's so wrong about circumcision? It's no big deal. Why can't we just do it? Let's just, you know, let's just make sure, just in case, this is what we need to do in order to procure our salvation. What's the harm? Paul is saying, don't you get it? If you do this, you are denying the sufficiency of what Christ has done for you. Now, I know you might be saying, well, what's with all the circumcision? We're not prone to wrestle with that today, but what about baptism? Now, don't misunderstand. This is a Baptist church. We value baptism here, but not as a means of salvation. We value it as an expression of salvation. One has privately been baptized in the Spirit of God when you accept Christ. Now, one in baptism publicly expresses that. As one goes down into the water, one is saying, consider me to be in union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the baptismal candidate is saying. I was talking to John Mark earlier in the last class. He said someone came to him talking about baptism and said to him, do I have to be baptized? And John Mark wisely said to him, well, I hope it's not a have to. I hope it's a want to. But the Judaizers were making it a have to. No. To be right with God, you have to accept the sacrifice of the Son of God. Boom! Exclamation point, not comma. If you add anything to it, then you are detracting from the sufficiency of what Christ has offered on the cross for your sins and mine. That's why Paul says, if you do this one thing, Christ will be of no benefit whatsoever to you. And I testify, verse 3 again, to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. See, they're not getting it. Remember I told you this, system A or system B, works or grace. That's the way it is. Now, Paul here is saying if you choose to live by one aspect of the law, you are yoked to its entirety because it must be taken as a whole, as a unit. Even James said this in chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So I have um, conversation times sometimes with Gentile believers who become so enamored by Jewish stuff. Now, part of that is good, and part of that is really bad. Become so enamored by Jewish stuff that now they think you have to worship on Saturday, you got to eat kosher food, you got to wear stuff on your head, you have to have, you know, fringes on your garments, whatever the deal is. Now, there's not a thing there that is a bad thing. But if you take those things on, thinking... This will assure my right standing with God. I'll tell you what Christ says. Then Christ is of no value to you. It doesn't impress God at all. And uh, I notice every once in a while, almost every week, I get a call from someone in the church or someone out whose relative or somebody's gotten involved in what's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, the Hebrew Roots of the faith, that's a good concept. But I'm not talking about that. This is a particular movement primarily populated, of all things, by Gentile believers like the Galatians who perhaps are fully justified, first aspect of salvation, now in their sanctification experience, they think they haven't had enough. We've been wrong. We're not doing Christmas and Easter anymore. We're doing the Feast of Israel. We're eating kosher food. You can do whatever you want unless you think you have to do those things in order to ensure your salvation. And I want to tell you what happens. You may say, no, no, I'm just doing this because it's meaningful to me. But I've yet to see a people group take on extra-biblical requirements that they don't use as a means of pridefully looking down on others. I spoke in a church not too long ago. It was a high-liturgy church, very beautiful, but I didn't know the liturgy. But everyone there knew when to stand, when to sit, when to respond to the officiant, when not to, etc., etc. It was quite beautiful, not a thing wrong with it. But I'll bet you there were people there. I was supposed to be the speaker. I made the mistake of sitting in the front. I should have sat in the back because, cause, you know, people stood. I was still sitting. Oh, boy. I gotta... When they said something, I was still doing it. Whatever. I didn't have to bow. I didn't have to do anything like that. <clears throat> I guarantee you there were some people there who already made a judgment about me before I even opened my mouth. How can that guy be right with God when he doesn't even know when to stand up? I'm telling you, it plays into our prideful human nature when we take on any of these things. Though they are not inherently wrong at all, but we use them as kind of spiritual badges of honor. Badges of honor. So there are certain groups who, uh, you know, men have to dress a certain way. Women have to dress a certain way. Women have to have a certain hair length. Women can't wear makeup. All that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Well, the makeup thing, please. <laughs> women. Don't submit to that, please. we got to live with you. You're killing us. What did this guy say? A woman goes to bed at night, you know, looking pretty good. Somehow she seems to deteriorate through the night. <laughs> and she wakes up the next day. <laughs> you go, what in the world? So, please, he, that makeup is a good thing. Keep, keep it going. <clears throat> None of these things are wrong things. But I'm telling you, they become, you know, I remember... Uh, I'm from an Orthodox Jewish background, and one time I was uh, doing this, chewing my nails like this. Just that. I, come, I have cousins. They're all rabbis. They're all, and I'm the black sheep of the family. And so I was doing that. And well, there's some kind of Jewish law somewhere which says you can't do that because you're mutilating the body when you do that. I mean, we got laws for everything. <laughs> and, man, they came out of the woodwork and publicly rebuked me for doing that. One time, our, well, our grandmother uh, died. And one of my rabbi cousins was doing a funeral. And uh, they all have these big, long beards. And I just realized why I couldn't be a rabbi. It's nothing to do with theology. I can't grow a beard. <laughs> so anyway, we're at the funeral. And there's, like, rules for everything you wouldn't believe. So I was one of the pallbearers, you know. And Apparently, you're supposed to take a certain number of steps, stop, and then the rabbi says a prayer. Well, man, I didn't. So I'm going, and I kind of ran into the guy in front of me (laughs) a little bit. This is a funeral. My cousins were all over me in front of everybody. Now, it was helpful to my mother, who was then considering the claims of Christ. I simply told her, Mom, I just want you to observe and see if you see the presence of God in the lives of our family members. However you might interpret the presence of God, the reality of God in a person's life, I just want you to see if you see any evidence of the presence of God in the lives of our family, but that really helped because uh, my mother was very upset by the way they were treating me, and she saw contempt and hatred, and she saw arrogance, and that's what all these man-made standards do—they make the practitioner absolutely arrogant. You look down on, you look down on on others. But so anyway, so Paul is making the clear statement here: number one, if you want to live that way, you have to live by the entirety of the law. Now, verse four is where we'll camp out on for the next few minutes, because this, this is a tough one. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. Now, this phrase, you have fallen from grace. <clears throat> On the basis of that phrase, there are some who um, uh, would uh, suggest that a person saved can lose their salvation. This verse is oft-quoted. You can fall from grace. You can lose your salvation through sin, through a variety of things. That's what this means. By the way, this is the only place in the entire Bible where that specific phrase is used. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, fallen from grace. Now, you can hold to that position if you'd like, where a believer can lose his or her salvation. You could. It's a free country. But you're not permitted to base that position on this phrase. You cannot misuse Scripture to prove your point. You can use Scripture to prove your point, and it may differ from mine. No problem. But you cannot misuse Scripture. That is not saying one may fall from salvation. It says fall from grace. Remember I told you there are three aspects of salvation, one that's a done deal, the past aspect, justification. That doesn't change, folks. The middle aspect, sanctification. Requires the grace of God just as the first aspect. It's the middle aspects of salvation where where we are in jeopardy. That's what what the Galatians were tempted to do. During the middle aspect of salvation, the sanctification process, they were saying, we know we are justified by God's uh, grace alone, but now we have to retain our salvation through works. That's what's going on. Now, listen, if these Galatians chose to opt out during the sanctification process of system B, grace, and opt for system A works. Paul says, you then will have fallen from grace. What does that mean? Not that you lost your salvation, but you lost the privilege of being in the sphere of God's grace. What does that mean? When you're living in the sanctification process, you get up in the morning and you say to God, you say, oh, God, I wish I could promise to you I'm going to deliver some good goods to you today that you'll be pleased with. But I really can't do that. In fact, oh, God, I may sin against you in thought, word, or deed. I do not want to do that, but I surely can't promise you that. And you know that, Lord. I still have sin in my my, uh, nature and so on and so forth. And you get up, and you're not too lathered up or bothered about it. Because you know your salvation has absolutely been secured by the merits of Christ, not by your own. You want to do the right thing. You have a new will inside of you. Your flesh never, ever discouraged you from sinning. God's Spirit in you is now doing it. But sometimes you plug into the flesh instead of the Spirit. That's just the way you are. You still have free will, and you still do it. Now, if you... During that questionable sanctification phase, if you say, in order to bolster up my case, oh God, so that I can be assured of your favor, if you add to faith in Christ things like baptism, circumcision, fasting every Wednesday, going on three mission trips a year, giving money to the poor, you add all these things, don't cut your hair, cut your hair. Wear skirts, don't wear skirts. I mean, whatever the deal is, watch TV, don't watch TV. If you had all these things as a means of bolstering up your plea to almighty God, you have just fallen from the sphere of his grace. And, and what that means is you're on your own. Now you do not have the grace of God to help you in the sanctification process. And what does that look like? It looks like you don't have peace and you don't have joy. And some of the most angry and bittered Christians I have ever met are those who have surrounded themselves with legalistic rules and regulations, which if they're not living by, they, are, they have so choked and quenched the fruit of the Holy Spirit, one aspect of which is joy, they're mean people to be around. <clears throat> one time I was at a church, and it was one of these kinds of churches I just described, and they went there to speak. And uh, they were the meanest, coldest, most distant group of people I ever saw. No joy, withered up lemons. They, you see, because they have fallen from grace, they did not have the, listen, they may have had salvation, but they didn't have the joy of their salvation. Because now they're working to keep it. As you have received him by his grace through your faith, so walk in him. In every aspect of salvation, we rely on the grace of God. So that's what it means to fall from. It does not say fall from salvation. So here's the deal. A Christian, a person may be justified by divine declaration. And yet. Not living by grace in the sanctification process. Their problem is not with their justification, it's with their sanctification. And that's what's happening here. Paul is not suggesting the Galatians have lost their salvation because he always, always refers to them as if they are believers. Read through it. He never considers them to be anything but believers. They are believers who, like us, during the sanctification process, don't live up to the freedom which we have in Christ Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking you're thinking, oh my goodness, Stuart, this kind of talk is going to give license to people to just sin all the more. I mean, if there's no rules and laws, guidelines to live by, just if it feels good, do it. Because Jesus forgave you anyway, didn't he? If Jesus took care of everything, then why live for him? Why don't you do your own thing? Now, that's a very legitimate question. And that was a major argument the Judaizers had against the System B, the grace system. But here's the deal. When we talk about faith in Christ, um, the legitimacy of faith in Christ has to be evinced, evidenced (laughs) by by lifestyle change. That's why James could say, faith without works is what? It's dead. Someone can pray a prayer, profess Christ, walk an aisle, whatever. Those are good things we ought to rejoice in. But we really should withhold undue excitement until about three months down the road and we see if that person is walking with the Lord. Listen, when I was a new believer, I was in the military. I was a new believer. I wasn't in a church yet or anything like that. And I was playing basketball, and uh, I used the Lord's name in vain. I've told you this story, I think, but I remember. I used the Lord's name at a basketball court. Oh, something in me made me feel uncomfortable about that. Well, I can't blame it on a good Bible study or a good preacher. I hadn't even exposed myself to any of that stuff yet. But something inside of me uh, told me that's not a good thing to do. I did it again in the course of the game, second time. Boom, I just felt so uncomfortable. I never felt uncomfortable using the Lord's name ever in my life, but I did then. And then I was so excited. I realized that's an evidence of God in me. I accepted Christ. He sent his spirit to be in me, and I saw an evidence. (gasps) My faith was legitimate. To demonstrate the legitimacy and the living nature of my faith in Christ, his spirit was in me, and I saw evidence. And then, and then, something in me gave me a desire to find a church, and I found one. I went to this church, and it was uh, nobody there like me. It was a small country church. I don't think they ever met a Jew in their lives. <clears throat> in fact, I, one of the first ladies I met <clears throat> she heard my last name, she said, is what she said, "Are you a Jew?" That was my welcome to the church. <clears throat> so I thought, "What in the world?" And yet I kept, kept coming back. Why? Something in me told me, "This is my new family. We come from different places, but we're ending up at the same place, the foot of the cross. That's all I need in common. we got some cultural differences. We'll deal with those over time. Now, why in the world would I do that? These were things contrary to nature. You might say they were supernatural. Well, you start seeing some of these things, you just found out that your faith in Christ was living faith, not dead faith. Uh, I used to read the Bible in a college literature class along with other literature. That's it. That was my only interest in the Bible. And after accepting Christ, I had such a hunger for it. And I found myself with a new facility to even understand some of it that I never did before. That is an evidence of God's spirit in me. I found myself, this is very interesting, instead of acting on things, praying first. Wow, what a novel idea. And then this is a really big one for a Jewish guy. I started giving money away. Man, that's not supernatural. <laughs> what the heck is that? Now, all of those, any one of those things, is an evidence of not mere words, faith expressed in mere words, but the kind of faith, living faith, which shows evidence of God's Spirit taking up his abode in our life. So, this idea, uh, uh, the grace system alone will lead you into licentiousness, is the very opposite. When you are filled with God's spirit and appreciate his inexpressible and free gift given to you, your motive is thanksgiving. You want to live for him in a pleasing way, not as a have to, as a want to. You want to please him. So it's not a matter of uh, whether in one system you live according to certain guidelines or not. It's the motive. When you're under law... Your motivation is externally imposed. When you're under grace, your motivation comes up from the Holy Spirit who wells up inside of you. And God gets the glory then instead of you living by some set of external laws. Now, if you stop doing that, you haven't fallen from salvation, you've fallen from grace. See the deal right there? Now, we should stop there because we're two minutes over. But there's more to say uh, in this uh, text. And Lord willing, we will get to it next week. Until then, Lord Jesus, we're glad to bow before you and thank you for the totality of our salvation. Uh, The penalty, power, and presence of sin dealt with by you, the great liberator. No system could get us free from it, only your grace. And what you've asked of us is faith. Believe, be confident, trust. We do, oh God, and perish the thought that we would be tempted to put ourselves back under a yoke of self-righteousness Instead of enjoying the righteousness imputed to our account by you, Lord Jesus. And oh God, I know you're running a grand experiment. Instead of externally imposed rules, you're showing the uh, power of your spirit in us to generate the right thoughts and words and behaviors, not as have-tos, but as want-tos. So we're not working for our salvation. We are working out the salvation which is already there so that all will see and so that you might be pleased. Thank you for saving us unconditionally, fully, completely, and throughout eternity by your shed blood on the cross. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you folks. We'll pick up, Lord willing, next week where we left off today.